Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lynn Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, October 18th, 2021. Happy birthday to Laurel. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim gives us part three of our inside look at how Walt Disney World was developed more than 50 years ago. Let's get started by bringing in the man who reminds you that the old English word for body was ban kofan which translates literally to bone cave. Sleep tight, kids. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? <laughs> okay, so we're, we're going for Halloween. Halloween <laughs> theme, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I have a whole thing of Christmas as well. Okay, cool. Well, if we're going to talk about bone caves, let's talk about real bone caves, like the catacombs in Paris. Disney fans, they love to talk about the utilidors that run out of the Magic Kingdom, <laughs> whereas the catacombs of Paris are this man-made network of tunnels that connected the ancient stone quarries that surrounded the City of Light. And Len, they were and still are constructed out of no lie, the remains of no more than six million people. Wow. The catacomb project was instigated back in 1774, where on the heels of an extremely damp spring, there was this gruesome series of incidents in Paris where the basement walls of structures had been built right next door to cemeteries. The walls would give away and suddenly all these skeletons would come spilling into, well, the 17th century equivalent of the rec room. Awkward. Right. I don't know who exactly, who, when they came downstairs, discovered their basement full of skeletons, were like, hey, opportunity to do some redecorating. <laughs> you know, the skulls look good here. It's it's giving out the right vibe for the basement. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Have you ever been or seen photos of a skeleton? It's kind of like the equivalent of walking through a space made out of Legos if, if all of the Legos were skull and femur shaped. Have you ever seen the actual catacombs in Paris? I have seen photos and I remain very happy that I am thousands of miles away. I mean, (laughs) did you ever, back when it was still dueling dragons at Lost Continent at at Universal, ever go through the queue of that attraction? The queue, yeah. First of all, that was the longest, most confusing queue in Universal. Absolutely. But they were little kids who are still in therapy because they (laughs) encountered like those two skeletons in like 20 foot long section of Snow White's Scary Adventure at Disneyland. And then there was the quarter mile long faux catacomb in Dueling Dragons. Yeah. It was kind of a poltergeist moment where they, when they changed it over to Dragon Challenge, they pulled the bones out. They pulled the, sc- yeah. the full skulls, and the th- but they left all of the holes where they used to be displayed. It's like, you moved the headstones, but you kept the bodies. <laughs> I wonder how many of those actually then wound up in the queue space, all of the, the skulls and the femurs for Skull Island, Reign of Kong. Oh, yeah. Did they fill in all of those holes, all of the little recesses and caves when they, they made Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure? I'm going to have to look the next time I go. I haven't successfully made it on that ride yet. I'm, I'm kind of hoping this trip is the, is the time. But anyway, yeah, Bone Cave. Nice little diversion there. That was, uh, that was good. It was cheerful. Happy Halloween, everyone. There we go. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Naku Konin, Bill Kava, and Alan Tolly, and longtime subscribers Hoyle, Christopher Smith, and Bamboo. Jim, these are the kind, kind Walt Disney World visitors who are handing over 25 cent pieces every time a guest steps up at Frontierland Shooting Arcade, thereby keeping it free to play for everyone a little while longer. True story. Uh, also, Jim, a uh, strange rash of laundromat robberies in Orlando. <laughs> Complete coincidence. 
The two things have nothing to do with each other. I don't know how these things even pop into my head. You know how you get those things in your Twitter feed where it's the lengthy photo article? It was one of these real-life hack situations, and it was somebody who was so proud that they had found, I guess, either on eBay or they bought it through Amazon, the key that you used to open the coin depository at your local laundry? Really? Yes, yes, you can buy those. So this could explain where all these quarters are coming from. I didn't even know that was possible, but now now we know. There we go. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, mm-hmm. some big news over the last week. Live entertainment returning to the Walt Disney World Resort. So in Animal Kingdom, we've got uh, Cora Tinga Tinga mm-hmm. and Chakranadi. At Epcot, we've got uh, the drummers at Japan. We've got Alberta Bound at Canada. And we've got Sergio, I believe the juggler? I Acrobat? Think you are correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. At Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, over at the studios, we've got Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular coming back in November. The Magic Kingdom, we've got, uh, and actually all around Walt Disney World, we've got character greetings coming back. They're going to be distanced, um, so no, uh, Disney says no hugs or autographs just yet, but uh, but socially distant indoor character greetings coming back. Also, a pirate adventure, Treasure of the Seven Seas has reopened in Adventureland. Our long national nightmare is over. <laughs> well, I, I think your next point here about the characters, there are again, some parents who are like, oh, cool, we get live entertainment, except... Yeah, the uh, the characters will be good to bring back for a couple of reasons, um, and things like you know Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. obviously, and a pirate's adventure. Bringing extra capacity to Hollywood Studios, oh certainly, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Indiana Jones is outdoors, so that'll we've already got Beauty and the Beast back, right? So that's that's that. Yeah, we're getting there. I have to wonder, our pal who was doing the enjoyment index was that the the, the phrase he used about you know how far we've come. The comeback back. index. Comeback yeah, index. Matt, yeah. Mm-hmm. Doing the uh, the Disney comeback index. Yeah. As soon as that's back, uh, I'm sure the number will uh, will blip back up. That's good. Mm-hmm. But you know, adding adding a, an entire new uh, entire returning attraction over Hollywood Studios will help boost capacity. I'm going to be excited to see how many times. The stunt spectacular is running. What was the minimum number of times that ran a day? Was it three, two, three? Yeah. I remember during its early years, there were the days it would run as many as 10 or 12 times. But again, that was when the studio only had five attractions as opposed to seven. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they gear up. Uh, Likewise, I don't know if you've seen, there's actually been photos from the set of the latest Indiana Jones film. Indiana Jones 5, um, Electric Boogaloo? <laughs> there we go. Okay, all right. You got to wonder if they're going to use this very long shutdown as an excuse to finally update the show. Because that was always the conceit when they did right. the opening back in 89 to the effect of, we will update this as the, the additional films in the series are... You think uh, you think they're gonna the show will be updated when it returns? I, I would be surprised. I would honestly be surprised myself, but there is a rather large auditorium space, you know, the, the arena space with some screens that perhaps as we're sitting there waiting for the show to begin, maybe we might actually get some footage from the upcoming film. Okay. Here's hoping anyway. Yeah. So. Also, I note that some Eagle Eye observers have spotted the Guardians of the Galaxy ride vehicles on their way to Epcot. 
Yes. And in fact, as part of the 50th anniversary media event, they did walk folks into the building and let them mm-hmm. stand there and sort of stare up at the giant track and get a sense of how truly big this space is. Mm-hmm. But conversely, James Gunn, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special and all of the write and film elements for Cosmic Rewind, he just tweeted out earlier this week when he was welcoming Will Poulter to the cast of uh, Guardians 3 that we begin production. We'll see in a few weeks. So the film moments of, of this attraction haven't even been shot yet. So Get a ways to go. Yeah, that's it. And it still kind of concerns me that all of the talk that, yeah, that's going to be our big attraction open in 2022. It's like, really? Okay. So a person that got to see the inside of Guardians told me later that the track was farther along than they thought it would be. And the fact that certain track elements already existed implied, if you go back and look at the order in which roller coaster track is assembled, mm-hmm. the things that they had seen in, had indicated that the track was either on uh, complete or very nearly so. Now, of course, that means there's a show elements and, and, and visuals and things like that are all built up around the track, right? The track is but one part of the overall experience. But the fact that the uh, the track was done was moderately surprising to this person because they didn't think that the show was or that the ride was that far along. It is a good sign that the storytelling coaster cars have been seen en route to the park. Because remember, the way WI works is it's a, a hundred hours of continuous operation. Get you know the attraction and the ride vehicles all work safely before they even sure. begin to hand this stuff up to ops. So oh, yeah, we, we're a long ways away from that. Yeah, but the fact that they can. Uh, actually get a uh, soon get a ride vehicle on what looks to be a completed track and chilling. just start cycling things or just you know seeing you know the beginning of the shakedown process mm-hmm. that's encouraging so that's good absolutely a couple of other things uh, in the news Jim starting tomorrow the 19th Genie Genie Plus and Lightning Lane begins in the parks that's going to be super interesting to see oh, I yes. know that Disney's given some media people previews of these things but tomorrow is the first big live test right okay i somehow pictured you know the folks at guest relations going could we get the really big bottle of the extra strength aspirin <laughs> i sense this is going to be a tough day we'll see we'll see what happens we're, yeah. uh, we're gonna be on site chris christina will be uh, in the parks we'll see what happens oh cool cool also um it looks like primeval world demolition at dino land animal kingdom is uh either mostly done or done Jim, we should expect to hear something about this at, uh, was it Destination D this year? Is that the that the event in November? That is the third weekend of November. It will be held at the Contemporary. And yeah, that is the scuttlebutt. That's the place where they will reveal what's coming, though. Been a lot of talk about a smallish coaster, so it'll be interesting to see what that coaster gets themed around. You think uh, Animal Kingdom gets one announcement or two announcements? Right now, it very much depends on what the perception is from Disney management in regard to, well, how is the 50th anniversary going so far? What's the reaction been? How are the crowds? Do we need to throw another log on the fire, so to speak? At least from their side of the fence, they view the Walt Disney World Resort as still very much in recovery mode. We're slow walking back to what it was prior to March of 2020. So Right. Also, uh, in related news about closings, uh, Universal's announced that Shrek 4D is closing. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you think is going, what's replacing that? We have, again, two pads here. Shrek closed at Universal Studios Hollywood 2015, 2016. 
and then came back as the DreamWorks Theater, which now is showing Kung Fu Panda, The Emperor's Quest. On the other hand, also opening on the upper lot there, we had the Secret Life of Pets off the leash, family-friendly dark ride. And Universal Creative seems to be very much investing in this whole neighborhoods idea. Oh, like Epcot did with uh, with its neighborhoods. That's it, exactly. And the thinking is that right across the street is the very popular Despicable Me Minion Mayhem, which, of course, is an Illuminations film. And what if across the way we put it in another property that's based on Illuminations? And the, the one that they've got developed and ready to roll is, of course, this Secret Life of Pets uh, off-the-leash ride from Hollywood. But at the same time, if they're looking for a more affordable possibility, keeping a 4D movie attraction in place, they could just bring in the Kung Fu Panda Emperor's Quest. Oh, so you think it's just, they're just uh, swapping out franchises but keeping the basic premise of the theater the same? It is honestly so hard to tell with the Universal Parks, largely because Brian Roberts, the gentleman who's in charge of Comcast, loves theme parks. You know, in fact, they followed Bob Chapek into the Goldman Sachs Communicopia conference last month. And they were talking about how they, they love the theme park business and they really want to heavily invest in their IPs. And But from what I understand, Kung Fu Panda is being held back for Epic Universe. Ah, uh, okay, okay. That might force the hand for Secret Life of Pets. I mean, again, it's it's a fairly fluid situation, and certainly what's encouraging is that I think our buddy uh, Bio Reconstruct recently flew over the Epic Universe site, and they're, they're back to work. So what's going into that park by the Orange County Convention Center is going to impact the options for Islands of Adventure and Universal Studios Florida. I was going to say, so at some point, Universal has to start making judgments about which films can support an attraction Mm -hmm. and which films can support a land or, to your point, a neighborhood, right? Yeah. And remember, one of the key conceits of Epic Universe was the whole notion of these lands will be built in such a way that they can be closed off from the rest of the park and then be made available for private corporate parties. Right. So that, in a weird way, also impacts the choices that are made because it's like, was hearing from a friend at Universal Creative to the effective. We literally went to all of these groups who have previously booked corporate events at the Universal Parks. And it's like, mm-hmm. hey, where would you like to spend the night, you know, with a, a party for your, your employees? Do you want to be in Frankenstein's village? Do you want to be in the village from How to Train Your Dragon? Or do you want to spend the night drinking in the Ministry of Magic from Harry Potter? And it just, and that's actually informing some of the decisions they're going to make oh sure yeah. yeah yeah that's super interesting all right so we'll see how that uh, how that develops so you think the um once they decide what's going in where shrek 4d is that'll give us a clue about what what's not going there we go there we go yeah. okay fair enough all right we'll keep watching that then which is the bigger property which is the one the corporate groups want got it all right jim and while we're talking about um films and film franchises remember before i left uh mm-hmm. starlight johansson was suing disney for $30 million, which she thought was the amount of money that was the difference between a large theatrical release of Black Widow and the streaming slash theatrical release that we got. Mm -hmm. So Scarlett Johansson wanted $30 million. We all remember Disney's response to that was basically, how dare you in the middle of COVID ask for money? Mm -hmm. How unseemly. I note, Jim, that although Scarlett Johansson asked for $30 million, 
Disney's tough negotiators settled for $40 million? Just a quick side story here to kind of give some folks on. I have a side story. I can't repeat on the air, but go ahead. Okay. (laughs) All right. Basically, you have to understand that Bob Chapek, this is the, the last week of September. Just prior to this, Disney had filed with Los Angeles Superior Court to the effect of, look, this is a contract we have with Ms. Johansson. We request arbitration. We want to take this out of the spotlight. And so Bob Chapek was thinking, okay, now it's done. We're going to be out of the spotlight and people will stop talking about this. By the way, uh, Bob Chapek was not part of the negotiations from what I understand. It was someone else. Oh, no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. But poor Bob Chapek is at the Goldman Sachs Comedicopia thing in September and the Scarlett Johansson situation gets referenced. Uh, Bob Chapek is doing the quarterly earnings call and during the Q&A portion, the, the Scarlett Johansson situation comes up. He's down at Walt Disney World just trying to get the 50th anniversary outside of the door, but he does sit down to the Wall Street Journal, Forbes and the like, and it comes up yet again. And supposedly what happened at this press event is Bob walked out out of one too many interviews where the Scarlett Johansson situation came up, picked up the phone, called Burbank and said, settle, just make this go away. It's not falling out of the news cycle the way I had been told it would fall out of the news cycle. And so the very same $10 million difference that you mentioned, supposedly that was an incentive to have Scarlett's team immediately issue a statement to the effect of, we are happy, we look forward to continuing working with Disney. And what's interesting is, I don't know if you saw the tandem release that came from Alan Bergman, the head of Disney Studios, where it it talked up about how they are very much looking forward to working with Scarlett on the Tower of Terror moving. Yeah, that got picked up. Yeah, yeah. this was the uh, yeah, this was the ten ten million dollars for hurt feelings. Yes, yes. But if you think about the twenty million dollars that was supposedly given as a make good to Emma Stone and also to get her on board for a Cruella sequel, but also not join Scarlet's lawsuit, the twenty million dollars each that was supposedly given to Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt for also not joining her lawsuit, but also agreeing to do a Jungle Cruise sequel. And coupled with the $40 million that supposedly got handed to Scarlett Johansson, that's $100 million. And remember that supposedly the reason Chapek wanted to make this statement was about how we now live in a streaming universe and people are going to have to get used to different deals with Disney. We're not going to pay as much as we used to. And, mm. and it's like you had to pay. No, they're definitely not paying as much as they used to no, pay more. No, <laughs> no, that's it exactly. Technically, he was right. <laughs> no, they, it's not directionally. <laughs> okay. All right, Jim, let's do some quick listener questions. Here's one from Kirk. who says, have you heard anything about Genie Plus only allowing you to use the lightning lane once per day per each ride. So the idea being that if you get a lightning lane reservation for, say, Big Thunder Mountain, mm-hmm. um, that's it for the day. Um, yeah, that, that is actually my understanding of it, that it's uh, once per day, which is an interesting predicament at parks like Animal Kingdom where there aren't that many attractions to begin with. And I think, Jim, this is one of the reasons why Disney started adding shows yeah. to Lightning Lane. We all, we all know from FastPass Plus mm-hmm. that shows rarely needed a FastPass Plus reservation. Yeah. I think what Disney is doing here is trying to make it look more appealing. 
Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be interesting, you know, watching this rollout, especially in parks like Animal Kingdom. But it's like can't wait That's to see you know, can't wait to see the lightning lane for kite tails. <laughs> Which is getting a little cult following here for its for its adorable uh, endings, yeah. I have a friend who genuinely loves NASCAR. I want to stress this, but said, you know, half the fun of going to a NASCAR thing is every so often they crash. And the thing of kite tails is they crash all the time. Yeah, it's unpredictable. And I think the unpredictable nature of the show is what makes is part of its appeal. It is actually, it is earnestly presented mm-hmm. by people who genuinely seem to like the, uh, the craft of, of kite flying. So there's nothing wrong with it. It's oh. just... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's fun for what it is. Oh, no, no, absolutely. But at the same time, having seen the photos of the folks sitting in Flame Tree Barbecue with the giant blue face looming over their table, <laughs> yeah. I, I have to admit, it's like, wow, where do I want to sit? You know? No, no. I was, uh, I was scouting out locations last time I was over at Flame Tree. Like, where do I want to sit to watch this? Yes. This no. is all over. Fair mm. enough. Um, also, one more thing. Um, one last minute thing I hear Disney's working on is to restrict people from getting multiple Genie Plus reservations before the park opens. So the way it was presented was you could get your first Genie Plus reservation at 7 Mm a.m. And then you can get one either when you redeem your first one or two hours after the issuance of your Mm -hmm. your first Genie Plus reservation. And that's useful because let's say that your first Genie reservation is for Big Thunder Mountain at 4 Mm p.m. You don't want to have to go from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. without another Genie Plus reservation. Doesn't make sense, right? You're not going to get enough use out of it to justify the cost. So the two hour rule allows you to stack multiple Genie Plus reservations. So the question was, mm-hmm. I know all of our listen, listeners here are always looking for uh, ways to maximize mm-hmm. uh, what they get. So the question was, if Epcot opens at 11 and I can get my first Lightning Lane reservation at 7 a.m., could I get another one at 9 a.m. and another one at 11 a.m. as I'm walking into the park? And it turns out, apparently Disney hadn't thought of that particular loophole. <sighs> but they're now working to close it. So my understanding is, is you can get one at 7 a.m. and then you can get one two hours later as long as the park is open, which means you can't do it at 9 a.m. if Epcot opens at 11. Okay. We are getting into that vacation space that verges on algebra. Well, this is one of the reasons why we're not, um, we're waiting a couple of weeks after Genie and Genie Plus, or Genie Plus launches Mm -hmm. to update the Touring Plant software because you know, Disney's told us what the rules are. We don't believe that those will be the rules there we go. going forward, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we need to see this thing actually working yeah. and see exactly how it functions before we can do it. So if your Lightning Lane reservation is from 12 to 1, how late can you show up after 1 o'clock? You know, I've heard everything from like 15 minutes to the rest of the day. Yeah. Don't know. We'll see. And that's seriously what the Disney World employees are being told. Yeah. They're kind of all over the map right now. So, no, yeah. you're wise to hold off for a couple of weeks till they figure out what's going on. So Exactly. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Jim, here's an email from Ron who was in the Magic Kingdom on October 1st and had some experience with the mobile ordering food issues Oof. that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Here's, what, uh, here's what Ron says. We ordered and walked over to our restaurant only to be held outside since it wasn't ready. After about 20 minutes, we went to another door, found a cast member, and told them how long we'd been waiting, and they let us find a table. We sat next to some ladies who had told us they had waited almost three hours for their food. At that point, we were close to 30 minutes, so I went to find someone at the counter. Mm-hmm. It was directed to a manager and a chef at the very end of where I was standing. Manager said they were having technical issues and were filling orders manually. She took my order number and filled it. But while I was waiting, 
I noticed there was a lot of food sitting under the warmers and no guests at the counters to pick it up. I think that the issue was with the app not informing the guests that their food was ready because we got notified about 30 minutes later. And uh, just as an aside here, Jim, this is what I think happened, Mm -hmm. that the notifications didn't go out about the food being ready. And then Ron finishes up by saying, I did witness the chef telling someone to dump all the food items in the trash since they had sat for too long. I I read this and I was like, okay, that's great on the the chef Mm -hmm. for doing the right thing. And then my next question was, how long do fries sit until they go bad? Mm. Like legit question. I mean, I guess they get soggy. Yeah. Could you refry them? There are those folks who love the double fried fries. I've I've heard that's the way to prepare them. Yeah, yeah. But in a weird sort of way, this is Disney's own quality standards getting in its own way. The notion of that's been sitting there for too long. We got to toss it. But at the same time, when you think about the Disney Harvest Program, how much of the food actually goes to food banks around the Orlando area? Geez, that's a tough call. I wouldn't have believed it until I saw it, but Mm -hmm. the idea of somebody getting a, uh, receiving a pallet of um, Pizza Rizzo personal pizzas <laughs> in pepperoni. Let me say that 10 times fast. Uh, is an amazing, amazing sight. It was, and, and they're relatively inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, did, uh, did you know that you can buy those uh, pizzas wholesale for a dollar each? I did not. Wow. A dollar. A dollar, mm. Jim. Mm. Yeah. We're going to eat like kings. <laughs> <laughs> All right. When we come back, uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break, folks. When we come back, Jim's going to give us part three. The early days of Walt Disney World. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, we've Mm. been talking for the last couple of shows Mm. around what Walt Disney World was like in the weeks leading up to the opening, October 1st, 1971. Now we're going to extend that a little bit to talk about what happened in the early days in general, right? One of the reasons I'm doing this is there's a wonderful new book that has just come out called The Disney World at 50, The Stories of How Walt's Kingdom Became Magical in Orlando. And what's special about this book, Len, is it actually, it's first of all, unofficial. It comes from the Orlando Sentinel. Really? Yes. And Mm. what's truly great about this is what uh, Roger Simmons and his team at the Sentinel have done is they've reached back into their own archives. So it's photos they took during, you know, for example, the construction of of Walt Disney World or stories they wrote in real time. Wow. Nice. I don't know if you saw the news that broke just this week about the happiest place on earth, the movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, being prepped for Disney Plus. Uh, what's kind of interesting is it's being executive produced by David Gordon Green. He's the filmmaker behind the new Halloween trilogy. So <laughs> I just have to assume at some point this means that Walt's brother Roy at some point puts on a coverall, you know, dons a William Shatner. Goes out to the shed at the end of the night, at yeah. the end of a long day of theme park planning. <laughs> there we go. I'd get it just it, it, it's there with the butcher knife. I'm going to get Walt to cut the cost of this thing if it kills me. But what I'm hoping. <laughs> is the, the, the well, Evan Spiliotis, the, the gentleman who wrote the screenplay for Disney's live-action reimagining of, of Beauty and the Beast, is supposedly handling the script for The Happiest Place. And I'm really hoping that as part of his script, Evan includes that moment where Walt has just found the perfect spot for Disneyland Park. And to celebrate, he and his uh, land acquisition team go to Mrs. Knott's Chicken Restaurant over in Boyna Park. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a Sunday afternoon and they're sitting there and they're happy because they've toured the site. And it's, oh my God, it's it's the right amount of acreage and it's right next to a highway. And oh, But here's the thing, they get a little loud. 
And the thing is, somebody evidently overheard them talking about this amazing piece of land because when on Monday they called the realtor to close the deal, it's like, I literally just sold it. Somebody just called and bought it out from under you. Wow. That actually very much informed how when they were hunting for the land for Walt Disney World, they buried- Just to keep it quiet. No, yeah, that's yeah. exactly. They buried the needle in the exact opposite direction. And what's fascinating is Disney World at 50, the stories of Walt's kingdom becoming magical in Florida, they talk with the folks who worked with Walt on the Florida land search. In fact, there's a, there's a gentleman, Jack Sayers. He eventually ends up as the head of industrial sales for the Walt Disney World production, but he was on- the land acquisition team. And he talked about what it was like in 63, where they had winnowed the herd, so to speak. They had three parcels that they were considering buying. And Walt at this point is like, I have to see them. I mean, I've been in California this whole time. I have to see them. And so it's like, okay, so Walt flies out to Florida. And again, they're, they're trying to be discreet. They're trying to keep a low profile. So when they fly into Florida, the entire group goes to a motel in Silver Springs, Florida. Not a hotel, a motel, you know, off the beaten mm -hmm. path. And it's the next morning. They're going to begin the land search. And so Walt has gone through the, sh the charade of, of signing in at the hotel as Bill David. Yet, you know, and so, but it's the next morning. They're, they're up the street in the diner getting ready to begin the thing. And the waitress comes up to the table and it's like, you know. You look an awful light to like that guy from television, that Walt Disney guy. And he said, Maury Povich? <laughs> yeah, well, there we go. And, and Walt, <laughs> that would have been great if he'd gone that way. But Walt said, well, there's a reason I look like Walt Disney. I am Walt Disney. And, it, and it's one of these things. Are the people at the table like, no, he's, he's just a senile old man we bring down. It's really from Kenosha. His name's Saul Freiberg. It's just a, that would have been great. But he contestant. literally reaches for a wallet and pulls out this driver's oh, license. Oh, and, and they're like, Walt, you just cost us eight million dollars or whatever. But but here here's what's fascinating that it lucked out because the very first parcel, in fact, where they stayed the night in Silver Springs is there was a, a chunk of land in Silver Springs that they wanted to show Walt, and so they go, they show it to him, and he's like, eh, it's not big enough. And okay. also at this point, he's become an expert on Florida weather. And in fact, then, you know, it gets cold up here, you know, so it's like, okay. So they then get on the plane and they fly over Ocala and there's a chunk of land near a horse farm that they want to show him. And it's the same drill. It's not big enough. And so they turn the plane, they fly to the Southeast and they eventually fly over the swamps of Kissimmee. And we all know this story, but what's fascinating about Disney's world at 50 is they put you on the plane. Uh, Jack Sayers, as it turns out, is in the seat across from Walt, and he can actually hear what Walt says when he makes the decision. He looks. I mean, this is a small plane, right? It's basically two seats across. There we go. There we go. Touch either side. Okay. Okay. So Walt looks out the window, looks down as they fly over Raz Island, and goes, "That's Tom Sawyer Island. Buy it." <laughs> the plane spirals down from there, <laughs> lands on the island, and there we go. Walt gets out with a suitcase of money. Right. Tom Sawyer <laughs> Island at Disneyland Park. Walt himself designed that entire thing. I mean, yep. Ev yep. every cove, every inlet. I mean, he sweated over that thing before it finally opened in June of 56. So, of course, when he's looking at Walt Disney World and, you know, we're going to go bigger, we're going to go do things larger in Florida to see an actual island in the middle of a real lake. And it's like, I can do Tom Sawyer's Island Oh, bigger. It's like, that's how he closed that deal. So Tom Sawyer Island is like one of the three or four things in Walt Disney World that, that Walt actually had a hand in, right? So um, 
Hall of Presidents, Carousel of Progress, Enchanted Tiki Room, and Tom Sawyer Island, right? If we're going by what the story of the Sayers you know, saying, you know, initially Walt is looking at that thing in the middle of, of Bay Lake and that's where Bay he wanted Lake, right. yeah, yeah. Tom Sawyer's Island. Whereas when they finally decided to build it in the park, and remember that didn't open year one either. That was a year two, year three thing. Uh, yeah, they, they were definitely, okay, what did Walt do on the other island? And okay, how do we carry this over here? Okay, all right, fair enough. What's truly cool about this book is it puts you on the plane. It puts you in the room. Like, for example, it, it takes you to the Egyptian room with the Cherry Plaza Hotel in November of 65 when Walt and Roy are finally talking about the Disney Entertainment Project. That's actually what they called it back then. They didn't say theme park. They didn't say Magic Kingdom. It was the Disney Entertainment Project. What they said is what they were going to build out in the swamps would be fresh and unique, would cost over $100 to build, and would feature two incorporated communities, the city of tomorrow and the city of yesterday. Even in February of 67, which, by the way, was the time that they announced, you know, hey, I know Walt has been talking about Epcot this entire time, but, you know, we're looking at, you know, what we're going to do for phase one with the Vacation Kingdom, and Epcot the city is not part of that. Okay. Roy goes on to say that we think we need to build the theme park first because there's this great quote that he gives talking about how, yeah, you know, the Epcot thing that Walt was just talking about. That's not phase one. We believe if we get 8 to 12 million customers here, it will then be a lot easier to attract industry, which in turn will be easier to fund the construction of Epcot the city. Fair. Okay. Not mean, not a, not a bad assumption. But what's amazing about this book is you get stories you've never heard before. Like, for example, when Walt is talking with Emily Bravarak, the young lady who works at the Sentinel, she's the one who actually figures out that it's Disney who's coming to Florida. But Walt reveals to her that one of the reasons that it would be ideal to build something like this in Florida is that they're about to finish working on the expansion of Cape Canaveral into Cape Kennedy, which means Um. there are going to be thousands of construction workers who are looking for the next project to roll onto. And so it's like, we're literally up the road. Yeah. Or an hour away. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is it's Disney in the raw. This is not the heavily edited, massaged version of Disney history that you'll get from the corporation. This is Walt speaking directly to the Sentinel, that them writing it down. Like, this is October of 66. We are six weeks out from when Walt passes away. But here he is talking about what Epcot the city is going to entail. And so it's like, in Epcot the city, there will be no slum areas because we won't let them develop. Oh, okay. Also, in Epcot the city, Epcot will have no landowners and therefore no voting control. People will (laughs) rent houses rather than own them. And then in Epcot, there will be no retirees. Everyone must be employed. One of our, our requirements is that people who live in Epcot must help keep it alive. And <laughs> well-known socialist Walt Disney on, on community planning. <laughs> and it, it's just funny to see when you think about how big Florida's retirement community was at this moment, let alone you know how big the villages are today. How- oh yeah, yeah, the villages are huge. Yeah. Oh. Also, I was I was I did a I did a podcast a couple weeks ago. It was on epidemiology, and mm-hmm. someone. Someone mentioned that the villages mm-hmm. in Florida has the highest per capita rate of STDs oh. in the country. I'm like, uh, yeah, exactly what I did. I was like, Shutter. Uh, <laughs> okay, how about that? 
I don't know if it's true or not, but you know. This explains a lot of the ads you see during the 6.30 news. All right. So no landowners, yep. right? No voting control. Mm-hmm. And then everyone has to be employed pitching in to keep Epcot running. I, I always thought that the C in Epcot was community. Apparently, Jim, it meant commune, and we didn't know it. <laughs> There are so many of these weird little stories because, again, Roger Simmons and the, the crew at the Sentinel just went through all of the stories they did and pulled out these little things like, did you ever hear this before? And we're going to end on, on one of these. That Here's Don Tatum, and this is February of, of 67, talking about what they're potentially going to do with these 24,700 acres of land that Disney has acquired. Yeah. One of the ideas they're talking about an African animal conservation attraction for the Reedy Creek. Don Tatum, who went on to become one of the high muckety-mucks at the Mouse House in the 80s, he talked about how he thinks Reedy Creek is a magnificent setting for animals to roam free in natural surroundings, and it may be used someday for that purpose. So again, this is 25 years before Joe Rohde even began pitching the company on Animal Kingdom? Yeah, he started pitching it in 92 and it opened in 98. So they're thir- more than 30 years out. Yeah. Like, hey, you know we'd go well here? There we go. African animals. There we go. So where do you where do you get this book? It's the uh, from the Orlando Sentinel website? Yes, you have to go there. I, I have to caution folks. It is $35 a copy, though I just got a a message as Lynn and I were recording the show that something to the effect of, hey, you want your personalized version of this book? And it's like, you'll have to figure that out for your own folks. But it's worth it alone for the photos that the Sentinel took over the the, the early construction of the Magic Kingdom and the site prep. Mm -hmm. And Roger Simmons and his team did a wonderful, wonderful job. And I know so often people ask, well, where do you get the stories that that Lynn and and you do on the Disney edition? it's a lot of books like this. So if you want to do a little digging for yourself, grab yourself a copy of Disney World at 50. I'm actually going to order it as soon as we're done talking here. That's fantastic, Jim. Cool, cool. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including two new shows on the history of Disney's Flying Saucer Ride. On next week's show, Jim and I talk about the history of of the electrical water pageant at Walt Disney World. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be judging the costume contest at the 2021 Long Branch Festival, beginning on Saturday, October 23rd, at the Whitechapel Projects in beautiful downtown Long Branch, New Jersey. While Aaron's doing that, please go onto iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.